Well, good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are more wonderful than the cherubim, more lovely even than the seraphim. You dwell in light, inaccessible, and yet you welcome us into your presence, Lord. Hush the noise of our hearts, our minds, so that we may hear your voice. And with the word with which you created the heavens, create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, pick it up and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3. We're reading the account of Jesus' baptism. So Matthew chapter 3, and I'll give you a moment to find that. Matthew chapter 3, we'll read from verse 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The reading of the word. Well, this is the big story context behind the baptism of Jesus. 1,500 years before the events of Jesus' life, you will recall that God saved the Israelites from Egypt. And he describes the relationship between himself and the people of God with the words of Hosea the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Now I'm going to ask you to keep that reference in the back of your minds because we will be coming back to it later in the sermon. And God says to the Israelites, if you are faithful to uphold my righteousness and be my instruments of justice in the land that I'm going to give you, to purify it from all evil and to defeat the powers of evil that exist there, then I will give you that land and it will be a home for you, a home of peace, of blessing, of justice and righteousness. Well, now fast forward the clock to the time of when they have their own kingdom, and it's during the reign of King David that God says to David, one of your descendants will rise up, and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And the scriptures tell us that from him will the glory of God shine to the nations, and to him will its people come to seek blessing. But you see, brothers and sisters, as the years roll by into centuries, the history of the Jews does not show them to have been faithful servants of God. And at the hands of the ancient superpowers, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the might of ancient Greece and the power of Rome, they suffer defeat and exile. By the time we come to the events of Jesus' life, it does not appear that the Jews are the ones to whom we seek in order to find God's blessing or the one from whom God's glory shines to the world. Instead, they appear to be just another minor kingdom crushed in the expansion of the Roman Empire. 
However, some Jews were clinging on to the ancient prophecies, those promises of old, perhaps more often than not whispered in hushed tones behind closed doors, that if God, if the Jews come to back to God in faith and repentance, then God will save his people, forgive them of their sins, and defeat their enemies. For these Jews, the march of history was waiting for God to act. The coming of the great king. And so we read in the text that John the Baptist is in the wilderness, preaching the coming kingdom of God. And Matthew describes him with the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And this prophecy in Isaiah 40 is one of comfort, comfort for God's people in a time of oppression, that God himself is coming to save his people and forgive them of their sins and defeat their oppressors. In verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Verse 11 and 12, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the shaft with unquenchable fire. We see then that the backdrop behind the baptism of Jesus, there is on one hand God's coming judgment against the whole world of sin, and on the other hand God's salvation for his people. And as Jesus comes on the scene, there is a tension in the atmosphere. One of heightened expectation, brothers and sisters, something is about to happen. Now, as we approach the focus text of our sermon, there is a risk for us as we sit here and uh, delve into God's Word. There is a risk that we think of the Bible as just a collection of disconnected and separate stories. But that is not what the Bible is. Rather, the Bible is one unified grand epic of what God is doing throughout history. And it finds its compass bearing in the person and work of Jesus. Indeed, Jesus himself tells us this in John chapter 5, that the scriptures are about him. And if I can say, what an audacious claim to make if he's not God. Uh, In Colossians chapter 2, we read that the Old Testament beliefs, customs, and practices were shadows pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus. So let me put it this way. If we understand the Old Testament, then as we come to the events in Jesus' life, to some extent at least, they should make us sit up and say, aha, now I get it. Now I know what those stories were all about. And so turning to the text now, actually, there are two fundamental questions we need to consider before we delve into the text. And these two fundamental questions are this. What does the baptism of Jesus mean in light of the Old Testament? That is, what does it mean when we see it with Old Testament eyes? That is the first question. And the second question is this. What does the baptism of Jesus mean for us today? So with those questions in mind, we turn to the text, and um, Jesus comes to John to be baptized by him. And reading from verse 13 again. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And let's pause there. And now listen carefully and think deeply upon what Jesus is about to say, because the words of Jesus we're about to read are what bind this whole passage together. And Jesus replies, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Brothers and sisters, why is Jesus, the sinless, spotless Son of God, coming to John for a baptism of repentance? Have you ever asked yourself this question? And what does he mean to say that he's doing it in order to fulfill all righteousness? Doesn't a baptism of repentance precisely mean one has not fulfilled all righteousness? And yet we know from elsewhere in the scriptures that Jesus is the one who knew no sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Well, we can begin by answering a question by saying what it does not mean. Jesus is not here trying to uh, make up for some lack in moral uh, goodness or he's not he's trying to do a trying to become a good person for his sake though something much more important is happening here so in order to explain what it all means we're going to have to do some digging so take out your shovels now i'm sure i assume that you've brought some shovels to church we're going to dig we're going to mine for clues in the old testament so turn with me to genesis chapter 1 the story of creation genesis chapter 1 Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This here is the story of creation, and before God creates a home for life, for plants, animals, and humanity... The earth is formless and empty and covered in water. Now, the word translated as spirit in our Bibles is the Hebrew word ruach, which means spirit, wind, or breath. And now I'm going to take the opportunity to embarrass you a little bit and perhaps have some fun. But the purpose is to help us connect the dots. So I want you guys to uh, repeat that word with me on three. So we're going to say ruach together, all right? So one, two, ruach. One, two, ruach. One, two, ruach. Okay, settle down. You're getting carried away now. Uh, if there are any Pentecostals who just walked through the door, uh, we know we're not talking in tongues, but you're more than welcome to worship with us. No. Uh, there, there, is a, there is value in remembering that term. Uh, we shall see shortly. Now, I invite you to think of other words, uh, other stories in the Old Testament which involve water. Perhaps you're thinking of the story of Moses as he leads the Israelites through the Red Sea. Or you're thinking of Joshua, who leads them to cross the Jordan River, the same river in which Jesus is baptized. Or maybe you're thinking of uh, the baby Moses who is saved by being placed in a life-saving basket or ark, the same Hebrew word that is used for Noah's ark. Or perhaps you're thinking of uh, Noah and the great flood. Well, let's turn to that story now in Genesis 7, and that's our other Old Testament witness Genesis 7, the very last verse in chapter 7, and we'll continue into the first verse of chapter 8. 
8, verse 1. So Genesis chapter 7, verse 24. Genesis 7, 24. And the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now, this is the story of God having judged the whole world of sin. And through this judgment of water, God creates a new home for life, for, for Noah, his family, and the animals with him. And that word translated as wind in our text is the Hebrew word, one, two, ruach. And that is exactly right. The word, the ruach, which hovers over the, uh, the earth, the water-covered earth, in the time of the judgment of Noah, is the same ruach which hovers over the water-covered earth in creation. Now, reading from verse 11, When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a, flesh, a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. And so the dove revealed to Noah that the new home for life, for the people of God who were not perished in the flood, is now appearing. Well, with these clues, let us turn back to our text in Matthew chapter 3 and see what they can reveal for us. And reading from verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. John the Baptist had been preaching of the coming judgment of God against the whole world of sin and of God's salvation for his people. And here is Jesus standing in the midst of the waters, and the Holy Spirit is above him and descends upon him in the form of a dove. Jesus is the ark of salvation through whom we pass through the judgment and enter into the new creation, kingdom of God. It is for this reason that... Uh, Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 3 about Noah's ark, he says, and only eight people were saved in it through water, and this water symbolizes baptism, which now saves you. And the Spirit of God, which descends upon Jesus at his baptism, therefore, fulfills the prophets who write in Isaiah 42, and I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Jesus comes not merely to establish the righteousness of a person. He comes to establish the righteousness of God's kingly rule on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Father describes Jesus with these words. And this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. But brothers and sisters... This is not the first time Jesus is called the Son of God in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 2, the previous chapter, in verse 14, we read this account in the, birth, in the, uh, in the account of Jesus' infancy. 
So he got up, that is Joseph, and he took the child, Jesus, and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Recall that earlier in the sermon, we saw that the prophets used this to describe the people of God, Israel. And here, Matthew is taking that description and applying it to Jesus. Jesus is the, the son called out of Egypt. And Jesus is the one who stands for and represents the people of God. And just as Israel was given that task to uphold God's righteousness and defeat the evil in the land, so Jesus takes upon himself that task. And because Jesus succeeds in it, he gains the promised reward. Not only then is the son called out of Egypt, he is the son whom the father loves, the one in whom he is well pleased. So to summarize our answer to that first question, what does the baptism of Jesus mean in light of the Old Testament? Jesus is the obedient and victorious Son of God, in whom we pass through the judgment and enter into the new creation, promised land, kingdom of God. Well, what does that mean for us today, though? When did Jesus actually pass through death? Well, as Christians, we know that Jesus passed through death when he died on the cross and rose again. In Acts chapter 2, verse 24, we read these words, but God, was raised, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. It was on the cross that Jesus reconciled all creation to himself. In, first, in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 19 to 20, we read these words. For God was pleased to have all, the full, all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And because Jesus is our representative, when he passed through death on the cross, we also passed through death. So now, see the personal individual connection between Jesus' death and our own baptism. In Colossians 2, we read, and focus on that first clause in Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Buried with him in baptism. So also in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, uh, verse 3. <clears throat> Romans 6, chapter 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were buried into, uh, baptized, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Verse 9 to 11. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, 
count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And this is the argument that we see in the New Testament, that so long as the guilty person remains alive, they are still liable for the punishment of their sin. But precisely because in Jesus we have already died, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now we are free. Hallelujah. It is this truth of the gospel, this forgiveness and liberty we have in Christ that we can hold on to. Now, Jerome Weller was a man overburdened with a grief and the weight of his sin and the thought of standing before the holy God at judgment with all his sins laid bare. And he writes to his friend Martin Luther, looking for some word of comfort or assurance. And this is what Luther writes in reply. When the devil throws your sin in your face and, deserves you and, and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Where Jesus is, there you and there I shall be also, if we are in him. And the spirit which descended upon Christ at his baptism is the same spirit we receive and by which we are called children of God in Romans chapter 8. But the death and resurrection of Jesus didn't put an end to all suffering and uh, hard, uh, suffering and humility and hardship in life, did it? No, but it was the beginning, the first fruits of Christ's recreation of the earth, of the world. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23 to 24, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Only when Jesus returns will he complete his work of recreation. But not only for us, all of creation with us. Romans 8. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And so to answer our second question, what does the baptism of Jesus mean for us today? It points back to the cross in resurrection where in Christ we died to sin and this world which is passing away and became citizens of the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God. It points forward to when Jesus comes again to culminate his work of recreation, where his children who've had a boot stamped on their necks will be pulled out of the mud 
made clean and dressed in garments of sparkling white and ushered into the hallowed halls of honour in his celestial kingdom, where those who have been cast out into the streets hungry and alone, for his name's sake, will be seated at the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb. In short, the baptism of Jesus is for us an image of the gospel in its most individual and its broadest cosmic dimensions. It is that with which you can hold on to with Perpetua in 203 AD, being pulled away from her suckling infant to face a leopard in the arena. With Betsy and Corey ten Boom in 1944, as they look to see they've arrived at Ravensbrück concentration camp. Or even in the drudgery and seemingly endless weariness of ordinary life, this is the truth you can hold on to when death and misery peeks through the curtains and reveals its ugly head in its many forms. And by the power of Christ, knowing that he is the victor, you can look death squarely in the eye and say, O death, where is your sting? Where is your victory now? So in faith, we hold firm that whoever is in Christ is forgiven, is a new, is new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. In hope, we look forward to when Christ returns and all things are made new. He promises us he will never leave us nor forsake us. Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. Amen.